From the University of the West of Scotland, this is the Research Matters Podcast. Welcome to the Research Matters Podcast, where we explore groundbreaking research and the way it shapes the world around us. I'm Kate Cotter, a broadcast production lecturer and documentary maker, and I'm always keen to learn more about research in practice. Today's topic is gravitational waves, and I'm delighted to be joined here by Des Gibson and Carlos Garcia Nunez to learn about their research in this area. Hello, Des. Hello, Carlos. Hello, Hello. Kate. Hello, Kate. Des Gibson is a professor at the School of Computing, Engineering and Physical Sciences and is the founding director of the Institute of Thin Films, Sensors and Imaging. Carlos Garcia Nunez is a physicist and expert in areas comprising material science, sensors and nanotechnology. So can I start by asking you, what are gravitational waves, Des? To really understand the concept of gravitational wave, we have to introduce the concept of space-time. And we're all familiar with space as being we were surrounded by three-dimensional objects that have X, Y, Z dimensions. We understand the concept of time as a progression, and we think of space and time as separate. In reality, one of the key elements of physics discovered by Einstein is that space and time are linked in a way that is very fundamental to physics. In essence, a gravitational wave is a distortion of space-time, and the propagation of that wave is a gravitational wave. I mean, it seems amazing to think that we are still carrying on from Einstein's legacy and developing into this area more and more. How, how was the phenomena called gravitational waves discovered, Carlos? So that was actually quite interesting because um, we use for that a very basic uh, piece of equipment, which is called interferometer. The interferometer is typically used to measure small displacements, small kind of uh, tiny uh, deformation of materials. And uh, adaptation of that interferometer, it has been used for measuring the gravitational waves. So how it works is when um, this interferometer is ad- adapted to extend, in this case, the dimensions of the interferometer into kilometer size, is able to detect those tiny variations that I was talking about. So how it works. You have a laser. Everybody is aware of lasers. We have from a small uh, pointer that you use in class to guide the students from one part of the slide to the other. But imagine a laser that is slightly bigger, something slightly bigger and more powerful. So you can get a laser and then you split the laser beam into two parts. One, you guide it in one direction. The other, you guide it in 90 degrees direction. And then you make the laser to be reflected on mirrors. And then you collect back the reflected signal. The optical path is called of both lasers. They don't produce any signal at all. If the optical path length is the same. What will happen is the gravitational wave arriving to that interferometer is producing an opposite effect on one of the optical paths than the other. One of the optical paths is elongated, is, ten, is subjected to a tensile force. The other is, is or compress, and that variation in the optical uh, path of both beams is actually producing a signal in the interferometer. So that was detected in 2015, that's the beauty of the detection, and a simple explanation of how actually a small technology that you use for uh, measuring deformations is kind of uh, giving a, another use for detecting things like that. So if I was to travel out into space, I would be actually able to see, physically see these lasers 
going in the two different directions. Is that right when you're doing this measurement? Uh, the, the measurements that we are doing at the moment, they are ground-based. So essentially they are in, enclosed in a facility at the surface in, in the Earth. Um, so that means you won't be able to see the lasers from the space. Uh, but there are some plans, uh, I think it's in 2030, where NASA is expecting to deploy the same technology to the space. So in 2030, NASA is expecting to uh, launch a program involving three spacecrafts. And the three spacecrafts will send those lasers that you were referring miles, millions of miles away. So we are not talking about four kilometers now, we are talking about millions of miles away. So that will increase actually the length of those arms and as you can guess, the sensitivity of, of the interferometer. So in that moment, you, if you are in the space, if you are in a space expedition, you will be able to see the three spacecrafts like in Star Wars, sending laser between each other and detecting the gravitational waves without any interfering from any noise source that we can have in the planet. That's actually... How would you explain to someone who has no idea what any of this means, the importance of this discovery of being able to find the waves and, and how all of that worked? How was how it and physically manifested? Really, the uh, gravitational waves are a very small effect uh, by the time they, they reach the measurement here on Earth. Uh, they may have occurred millions of light years away. So you need very large uh, gravitational effects, masses, in order to make that happen. And effectively, we're looking at uh, one of the most massive uh, gravitational uh, influences in the universe are black holes, where you have extremely high mass that gives a massive distortion of space-time that we spoke about earlier on. So really, the type of events that we're looking at to create gravitational waves to an extent that we can measure would be, for example, two colliding black holes where the gravitational interaction is immense and causes huge ripples in space-time that literally spread through the universe and maybe millions of light years away. So by the time they reach here, even though they might be have started with a very strong interaction, they still have a strength that we can measure here on Earth. So we're looking at massive events and these are actually happening on a higher frequency than anyone had anticipated. And the ability to measure these has taken about 50 years to achieve. So it's and it's it's a truly international activity to measure these and it is a, a, a huge step forward in physics and the understanding. But the starting point is you need these massive astronomical events and one of the uh, the most massive is a collision of two black holes that gives huge ripples in space-time. So that's what we're measuring here is those ripples rippling out from that central collision uh, event to ultimately detection on, on Earth. Okay, so I'm trying to kind of draw this back to a, a layman's analogy for myself, or a layperson's analogy. So these are ripples in the fabric of space. Um, I'm thinking the only ripples I could create would be if I threw a, a pebble into a pond, that I can kind of see those visual ripples. How, how frequently does something as amazing as the collision of two black holes, how frequently would something like that occur? Is that once a week, once a century, Carlos? Initially, we are talking about 2015. That was the first discovery, right? Um, two black holes, as, as Professor Gibson just said. Um, and then after that, uh, you know that all the consortium uh, 
of people working in the observations, they start preparing a catalog. So uh, last year, 2021, it was released, the, the third version of that catalog. And in that catalog, they included, uh, I think, if I remember well, up to 90 uh, observations in total, not just black holes, but a lot of uh, lower energy events. So that makes around round number 100 observations uh, in these seven years, uh, which means every year we have around seven, 10 observations. That's kind of the order of magnitude that we are talking about. I need to remember that those uh, observations, they are coming from very massive and very energetic events. But at the moment we are blind in, in the sense of observing uh, lower energy events. That's amazing. It's amazing to be able to be so, so specific. So, Carlos, you, you've mentioned interferometers to us. Can you tell us about where these uh, places are based? Yeah, so essentially um, we are at the moment uh, discussing about the third generation. So let's let's kind of classify in different generations of interferometers. So what we have is the first generation, that's LIGO. Uh, and then there is Virgo, and then we have also Kagra in Japan. Okay. So that's so what one is the LIGO. LIGO is the uh, the first interferometer deployed in uh, the United States. Uh, Virgo is uh, deployed in Italy, and the third one that I mentioned belonging to the first generation is TMA Tama in in Japan. So these three they are um, they are forming the group of first generation of interferometers that we know. Uh, they have different a kind of size, uh, being LIGO, the one that it has the longest arms, like four kilometers. Virgo, it has three kilometers, so it's slightly lower. And then we have new ones, one in Australia. Uh, and then in Germany, we need to mention as well the, the interferometer in, in Germany that has been included in the second generation of gravitational wave detectors. The third generation, and that's one that is going to be built in Europe, uh, is called Einstein Telescope. And that's the first change in the configuration of an interferometer because we are discussing about two laser beams, two arms, but this is a revolution because it's going to be a triangular shape interferometer so three it's, it's not three laser but three different paths which is kind of enlarging the optical path and making the the interferometer to be more sensitive and this one for the first time is going to be underground the rest of the interferometers they are ground based but they are enclosed in a facility which is at the surface which it can be subjected to some external noise that you don't want. But this one instant telescope that is uh, going to be functional up and running soon, uh, there are some kind of a small prototype going on, uh, it's going to be underground. So hundreds of, me uh, of meters uh, buried in the, in, the, in the earth to avoid this kind of uh, noise that I'm talking about. That's the third generation. So thanks for that, Carlos. Des, could you tell us what is the University West of Scotland's involvement in the LIGO project overall? Well, Carlos has outlined the uh, the use of uh, uh, interferometric techniques and um, lasers uh, propagating for four kilometres. Those are then reflected back from mirror structures. Uh, so two mirrors that reflect back and then we're looking at an interference effect in the light. UWS's specific involvement is looking at new generation mirrors. And we mentioned the fact that uh, we're looking at uh, detecting gravitational waves from massive distances. The sensitivity of the interferometer will determine how far away and how weak a signal we can measure. The, the mirrors are now a source of noise 
uh, in the system and the the atoms within the mirrors the movement of those atoms introduces noise into the system so we're looking at new techniques to make these mirrors which are based on vacuum deposition in order to minimize that noise parameters so we're, we we have secured funding together with Glasgow University Strathclyde Lancaster University that's a combined program worth about uh, 5.4 million sterling and part of the UWS involvement is looking at new techniques basically using plasmas as part of the control of the structure of these mirrors to minimize this noise contribution and we have to be able to do that over large areas. That sounds like the project's becoming much more specific the further along that we progress. Why, why are we doing all of this? What, why are scientists trying to measure gravitational waves? It's, it's an endeavour to, from a physics point of view, really prove, uh, or it's already proven, Einstein's general theory of relativity. And the discovery of gravitational waves was the last tick in the box, if you like. So from a, a philosophical fundamental point of view in terms of understanding our universe, uh, the space-time relationship, the influences. Uh, so it's it's contributing to the greater knowledge of humankind. So as a fundamental level. So that might not cut ice with a lot of people, but the process of discovery has also led to new technologies, new techniques that are finding applications in in imaging, in signal processing applications. So this this spreads into general use. Uh, the optics we're developing, for example, for the mirrors has applications in lasers so that we can generate much more powerful lasers for medical use or for observational use in terms of the environmental monitoring and so forth. So you have the fundamental benefit benefits in terms of addition to humankind, but also you've got huge numbers of technological spin-out benefits. It's also an international effort. So this is over 1,000 scientists worldwide as part of the LIGO community. And Carlos and myself are, are members of that community. So it fosters international collaborations. Um, again, I'm just going all the way back to Einstein. It does seem incredible that uh, that we are still building on, on something that something that somebody worked out by themselves such a long time ago. Um, and it seems very appropriate, therefore, that the next generational step is Einstein's telescope. Um, does the underground aspect of the telescope mean it's also using mirrors in its application? Yes, uh, they, these are using these interferometer systems and it's a very specific type, a Michelson interferometer that was actually developed at the beginning of the last century. So uh, we're not using particularly new technology. It's a very well-known format. What's new is laser technology that really gives you the sensitivities that you wouldn't have with other light source formats. So, but it's a very old concept. And, uh, you know, Einstein, uh, the general theory of relativity is an amazing step in physics. It, it, it is one of the mankind's great leaps of understanding that just has brought knowledge together. And it's very indicative of physics where we all know about Newton from the 17th century, and it was generally viewed his theory of motion, 
That was it. There was no more to do. But anomalies started to show up in the late part of the 19th century that Einstein picked up on. And these were clues that all was not understood and all was not well from a theoretical physics point of view. And out of that, he developed the special theory of uh, the, the both the special and the general theory of relativity based on that. It is not to say that we won't find chinks in the data. So this isn't the end. Uh, I would imagine that there will be um, additional groundbreaking theories that will take physics on to the next stage. And there's aspects of the observations that we're looking at that no one really understands at this point that are opening up questions for the future. There's nothing that a gravitational wave can't get through, I'm beginning to understand, given that we're going to put one of these telescopes under the Earth. So gravitational waves can go through anything. What would happen if a gravitational wave passed through the studio right now? Do they interact with matter in any way? It's actually happening. Um, maybe not today, but maybe tomorrow will happen because we said that we have a frequency of around 10, uh, seven, 10 uh, observations per year, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's actually one of the features that we know from gravitational waves is that they are not affected by matter. So they will actually pass through the whole building and probably through the whole planet. And if we don't have any laser to be affected by that. And you know by now that the laser it needs to be put it in a specific configuration to be detected. But we know that they cannot be affected by matter. So that's why when they are traveling through the space, they have the information from the very beginning. So they got the information from that collision between two black holes and they bring the information to us intact without any effect from any planet, any kind of a star, even if the star is really massive, uh, intact, as I mentioned, as uh, they were orgi originated and it's coming mm -hmm. to us and it will travel all the way through the Earth towards the next interferometer, who knows, in another planet with more humans elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> now that is a whole other podcast. <laughs> um, so back to these black holes that you've mentioned, can these waves help us to uncover the mystery of black holes? Uh, yes, uh, because the, again, general theory of relativity uh, enables us to predict on the basis of measuring the gravitational waves uh, and this change in the interferogram, we can then use that data to predict the size of the black holes, the mass, So, and we can look at the distance that they are away. So LIGO actually stands for Laser Interferogram Gravitational Observatory. So these techniques are like a new way of observing the universe. And by looking at the gravitational waves, we can then predict the size of those colliding black holes. We can tell how far away they are. We can tell more about the structure of the black hole. So it's like another telescope, but observing gravitational waves, not traditional light. So they give us a large amount of information. Wow. So Des, the interferogram gives us large amounts of information. Um, and yet there must be more there must be more out there that we haven't uncovered that we can't get all the information about yet. What are the other mysteries out there for us yet to uncover? I think the key mystery is understanding the mass of the universe. Uh, we understand about twenty percent of what's there, but we have what is known as dark matter that is not understood. Mm. And that's 80% of the uh, of the universe. We don't know what it is. Um, we're beginning to shed light through 
gravitational wave observing, uh, because this this um, uh, these masses actually distort the way light propagates. Uh, so the gravitational field distorts the way light propagates through the universe. And by mm -hmm. measuring that, we can start to look at where this mass is, how much of it's there, right. how it's distributed through the universe. So this is one of the big mysteries is wh what is it? Uh, where does it come from? Why is it distributed in the way that it is? How does it fit generally to keep the balance in the, uh, in the universe? Also, nature of black holes. Where do they come from? Mm -hmm. What do they form? It's an infinite or point, if you like, in terms of gravity in space. Where does that go to? People talk about uh, punching through into a different universe. Conjecture, but mm -hmm. is it true? Is it not? So there's lots of mysteries, and this is the story of physics, is one observation leads to explanation of phenomena, but mm -hmm. opens up others that are not understood, and that's how physics progresses, mm -hmm. is then evolving new theories, tuning existing theories to explain those new phenomena. Dark matter is a classic example of that. So it's inspiring to think anybody can still, at any point, look around them, think about something new, conjecture a whole new theory for us. Uh, absolutely, and, and Einstein's a, an absolutely classic example of that, where he was a patent clerk in Zurich and had a passionate interest in science, was reading science on a regular basis and was discovering these anomalies. And then from that had the thought processes to understand why and that is where general relativity came from. So a huge leap in understanding. Well, this has been a really wonderful conversation. So what I've learned is that gravitational waves are ripples in the fabric of space-time. And it's really been inspiring to hear about your research and your work, Des and Carlos. Thank you very much for joining us here today. And uh, we wish you uh, every best wish, every success continuing on with the, the research and the endeavours of the Institute of Thin Film Sensors and Imaging. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much for thank having you. us. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. bye, -bye.